In this episode of Target Cancer, you're gonna learn about very quickly how cancer has evolved from how we used to treat it to how we treat it today. In this episode of Target Cancer, you're gonna learn how music actually has statistical data and is shown in clinical trials to help several metrics when it comes to cancer management, including fatigue, pain perception, anxiety, and even makes procedures less painful and dramatic. So on this episode of Target Cancer, we have Mr. Derek Alpert, who actually spent the first part of his career in a very successful music industry, and then literally walked into a children's hospital, basically just as part of you know a community event, and was so overcome by what he saw in children and the treatments they're going through, that he basically made the next 40 years of his life doing everything he can to help them move the needle forward in cancer and its treatment. Mr. Derek Alpert is the full-time president of Concern Foundation, has raised over $70 million and over a thousand researchers or research institutions over 55 countries in the world. And he, they do this because they donate 95 cents of every dollar back or directly into cancer research. So the first thing I asked Mr. Derek was, most people have some kind of calling or you know significant experience to bring them into cancer and dedicate their lives. Was that the case for him? That's, that's exact, Sanjay, that's exactly right. I was invited in 1979 to visit Children's Hospital Los Angeles and hear from a, a uh, cancer research scientist that actually was the head of the cancer center talking about cancer cells and what's happening in the cancer community. But then at the end of his talk, he took us up to the fourth floor at Children's Hospital. And for the first time in my life, I saw pediatric patients. I saw kids with IVs in their arms and no hair and parents holding babies that were getting chemotherapy treatments. And I completely broke down crying. And I walked out of the hospital that day and I said, as long as there's a breath left in me, I'm gonna do something, as you said, so that uh, no other child or person has to go through something like this. That's, that's incredible. And that's really how it started. Yeah, and you know, I get asked a lot, and I've said this before, um, my wife and I are both oncologists very kind of passionately, and we get asked a lot like, well, why did you do oncology? Isn't it depressing and things like that? But the truth of the matter is, it really is just extremely humbling. It is extremely daily dose, like you're just humbled and you're inspired by people that have strength, kids that have strength and you know, problems that I think would have been or would be bigger problems in our lives just aren't because you just see firsthand the kind of like, you know, what people go through and pioneer through. And I think I've been more, you know, celestially or whatever inclined to believe that there's something more that wills us to be able to get through those things, just seeing kind of even even the growth of patients from day one, like quiet and kind of meek and all of a sudden like laughing and kind of, you know, just commanding the room and she could be 80 years old and she could have, you know, stage four cancer and nothing's changed, but really just, just being empowered right. and educated and all those things. Right. So... Siddharth Mukherjee, I forget which podcast, I think it was with Peter Atia. he said something very interesting. And he basically said, you know, decades ago when kids were growing up and people said, well, what are you going to do when you grow up? Or what do you, what do you want to be? The phrase was, you know, I'm going to go to the moon. And that was like the hallmark of like being, you know, of, of, of innovation and success and kind of reaching the very top and pinnacle. And then he made a very interesting point. And he said, and it gives me chills when I think about it, he said then now, if you ask a kid, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like a leader, somebody that wants to go get it. They say, I want to find the cure for cancer or find or cure cancer. And, and his point in that was just saying how challenging and difficult and stubborn, obviously, like this disease process is and all the different types. I don't like to call it a singular thing because it's a little deceptive. Yeah. But, um, but it's so true. It's because it is the, literally the collective 
challenge, the biggest collective challenge for all of humankind, with all the kind of, you know, polarization we have now on topics and socially and politically, there's no one that could argue that if we could do that, that would be great. And I think that's what your focus, like, not think, I know that's what your focus is, is how do we enable these people to move that needle forward and say, okay, yeah, you want to do that when you're 12? You're getting out of school. Let's make it happen. That's the coolest thing about you know the cancer, uh, the the foundation that you have and the fundraising that you have is to enable those people to do that. No, exactly. You know, um, our mission is to fund the young investigators, give them their start in the cancer research community, to encourage them to get into research. You know, you talk about you know going to the moon. You know, it, when I was younger, that was science fiction. Today, it's science fact. You know finding yeah. treatment options, better understanding cancer was science fiction 50 years ago. And, you know, they were saying, we're going to cure cancer in 50 years. Well, they didn't really understand what cancer was. That was science fiction. Today, it's science fact. When you look at pediatric patients, where 85 to 90% of leukemia patients, pediatric leukemia patients are being cured today. No one, you know, we didn't really know what was going to happen. But you can't cure something, you can't make something happen until you understand what it is that you're trying to accomplish. You know, there is, you know, uh, there was a, a, a researcher friend of mine many years ago that said, you know, he would ask the question in a, in a forum, he said, how many different types of cancers do you think there are? And there was a group of lay people in the audience and people were saying, oh, I think there's five, I think there's 10, I think there's 20. He says, well, you're right about all that. He said, but the truth is, if there's a million people that are diagnosed with cancer, there's a million different cancers. And we have to look exactly. at it. In, we have to look at the individual. It's personalized oncology. We have to look at their genetic makeup. We have to look at their family history. We've got to look at their, their environment, their weight. All the, There's so many other factors that cause this inactive cancer to become active and become mutate and become aggressive. Yeah, I'm really, I'm glad you said that because a lot of people think, one, of cancer collectively. And then a lot of people will then say, okay, it's not collective, but it's colon cancer, lung cancer, and skin cancer. And the truth of the matter is, it's, it's, that is just the bare tip of the iceberg, right? We've learned so much and finding like, basically, you have multiple mainframes of switches and it can be any combination of those switches that causes this cell in a particular person to turn into a cancer and be unregulated and keep growing. And then what happens? You start treating it, and then it decides to flip some other switches to where it says, oh, I don't care if you turn off that breaker. I have some other, you know, electricity in this other area. And so it becomes very challenging. And how can you predict which switch will be flipped? I also love that you said family history because what we're learning is, and all of this, you know, as a quick summary, the way cancer evolved was first, you know, there was this during World War Two, there was this like ship that basically broke like on the southern coast of Italy and it had a bunch of mustard gas. And unfortunately, it, you know, killed a whole village. And when they looked at the autopsy, they're like, their white counts are zero. What is it about mustard gas and alkylators? Well, that's cytotoxic chemo, one we use very much. And everything was poison, the cells that replicate the fastest because we know this chemo stuff works on fast replicating cells. We went from that to then saying, okay, well, can we find something specific that drives this cancer? So is it the estrogen receptor? Is it testosterone receptor? Is it HER2 positive, right? Like that, that really, what was once really ugly was a terrible thing you cried about in breast cancer because we knew it was so aggressive because HER2 liked to proliferate. Suddenly, 
became favorable because now you know how to attack it. So we were attacking these things specifically on cancers. And now what we're just, you know, learning or studying and finding intervention for, which kind of sounds silly because we know the immune system, you know, t protects us and kills cancer cells that would be cancer all the time, is re-enable the immune system. So we got immune therapy in 2015 that basically says, hey, body, do what you do. Go ahead and lymphocytes and go ahead and kill these cancer cells. And then what you're funding and what, you know, what the foundation, Concern Foundation is, founding, uh, is funding is how do we even make that more effective? So a lot of the therapies are becoming, you know, immune therapy related. So it's like, I don't have to do this poison or chemo. I can just liberate and enable and empower the body to do it. But to understand that, you have to realize that you don't, you can't fix what you don't know. We didn't know about this, like these processes before. We didn't know about PD-1 and we didn't know about CTLA-4 and, and, and where NK cells play. And so that's the really cool thing about Concern Foundation, which I love, started with Conquer Cancer Now, right? That's what, that's what makes Concern uh, uh, the acronym. And it's, it's great because we are concerned. We're all concerned. And the people that I have on this podcast that are in PhD, UPenn, like Ricky, it blows my mind where we're at. And I'm just eagerly waiting for it to get there. But it's very f conceivable that we can get there and on top of all cancers, but we have to have the finances and the money to be able to study them under not just a microscope, but with crazy right. kind of and equipment. That's, and that you're right. And that's the catch 22. Where is that money going to come from? You know, it's wonderful when politicians say, you know, we're going to go for the moonshot and we're going to spend all this money in curing cancer. And, you know, Joe Biden and his personal mission to cure cancer. It's wonderful. But you notice that's not even in the conversation today because we're spending money in other areas defending our democracy and defending other helping to defend other countries so it really takes private philanthropy to step up understand where the money needs to go what the investment needs to be and let's invest in finding the next generation to help take us from where we are today to where we want to be tomorrow, to where we're going to be the next day, and so on and so forth. And that's really what Concerns Focus has always been. It's been young investigators, immunology, immunology-based, no more chemotherapy, no more radiation. If the body can break down, let's help the body's natural immune system repair itself. That's the key. Yeah. That, that, that is the total that is key. The and key. the key is, and the word, we don't use the word cure, and you probably don't see the word cure anywhere on our website, because we're not going to cure cancer. Cancer is never going to go away, right? Cancer is right. manageable, treatable, curable, but it's never going to go away. And so we have to help oncologists understand how to treat a, a person so that they can manage their cancer and live a normal, healthy life with cancer exactly and that's what so many of the experts like like you know in the industry and like yourself have echoed it's that we may not necessarily be cancer but we can make cancer something you die with and not die from right and the way i talk about it is like with hiv and you know herpes and some of these things where we're like oh you know they're so bad now you don't have detectable you know viral loads at all but it takes a combination of regimen right there's a triple therapy for hiv you have HIV technically, but there's no virus floating around as long as you take your meds and then you stop 
then all of a sudden it comes back. Cancer is going to be what many experts say the same way, and it's going to be multi-modality, meaning like different mechanisms. Let's do a little immune therapy to get the body to start attacking it. Let's go ahead and neutralize the anticipated escape mechanisms for when it outsmarts yeah. the body's ability to do that. Let's go ahead and, you know, and so it's, it's extraordinary what I've learned as an oncologist that I would say works very hard to learn everything that's novel. And then I talk to people that are in the PhD, you know, programs and stuff, and my mind is blown. Like CAR-T therapy, right? New kid on the block, so amazing. Wow, you can like basically take out the lymphocytes, train them to be RoboCop, go back in and know exactly what to hone in on and destroy. And then I found out with Ricky from UPenn at the PhD, with his PhD program, oh dude, we're already looking at making the CAR-T therapy in the body right. so that you don't have this right. turnover time about taking it out. Making, and I was just right. like, I, it, it's it's crazy to, to even be able to you know conceive on how rapidly we're accelerating. I did think it was really cool that you know when I was researching in two thousand five it was like fifty plus you know cancer researchers that the Concern Foundation had, and then I look at today's and it's like oh it's Don't over hurt. a thousand. And so to your point about people getting on board and wanting to do this, the evidence is there that people realize and recognize whether it's in your lifetime or not, which I think it will be like very conceivably in, in our lifetime where we can get on top of it this way, that it's the one thing that you hope that when you and our generation leaves this world, all of us, that like we still have moved forward yeah. on, right? Because the debility, it's not even the death. It's what it does psychologically, what it does for emotions, and what really trying process to even get on top of it is today. You don't want that for people. Who wants right. that for people? And that's what that's what you're trying to do. It's like it's saying because it's not just the patient; it's the mom, it's the dad, it's the brothers, the husbands, the wife, it's the kids. They all get to you know. It's a reckoning. It's the whole family. It, it affects the whole family. And look, Sanjay, from what I understand and what I've learned over the years of of working in this business, is every single person will be touched by cancer. Oh, 100 percent. And it's the only disease in the world that will affect every single person. 1000% directly or indirectly so we've got to pay attention we've got to pay we've got to pay as much attention to that as we have to do with what's happening with our environment and global warming and and, and how we're destroying our environment how do we help repair the environment the same way we're trying to get the body's natural immune system to re-energize it to help repair itself because it broke down for whatever reason whether it's you know, skin cancer because of sun, whether it's lung cancers because of smoking, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, refined sugar, I mean, all those other factors, you know, it all plays a role, but it it's, it's really the same thing. So the environment, saving the environment to me is just as important as saving the human body from this disease called cancer. You know, how do you make it, how do you help it repair itself? How do we help the world repair itself and, you know, it's it's really the same thing, and it's it's a two it's a two prong process, but we're not going to get anywhere unless we make an investment in the future of researchers in these young minds that want to study this, that want to have an impact. But you know, it's it's not a very advantageous career when you have to spend three or four months out of your year out not working in the laboratory, but you're out there looking for money. Yeah, you know, yeah. You and have I wish you know how to... money writing grants and trying to find money. The government needs to be helping to support it. Private philanthropy needs to step up and support these people so they can spend ninety nine percent of their time in the laboratory 
finding the new discoveries, and not running around writing papers when at the NIH at today's level, eight or nine percent of, of the grants are being funded. It's, it's a crime. It shouldn't be this way. It is. And, and, and that's one thing I really respect about concern is I read that it's literally like 90 to 95 cents of every dollar actually goes to like directly back to cancer funding, which is almost just unheard of with nonprofits and a big concern, at least from the social media side and when people are talking about it. So that's, that's extraordinary. Now, in one, in some sense, you know, there, obviously the phrase naivete is bliss, I think applies ever more than it had before when it comes to like what you know and don't know and what people speak on without knowing on. And I think really part of that is exactly the experience that you had when you went into that children's hospital and saw it. When you see and know firsthand what treatments are like and what the, you know, the journey is like, I think that just opens up a whole new box of, of empathy and, and, and strong will and desire to not have that stranger go through that than to not know it and see it. And so I do hope or believe that anyone that actually like, you know, isn't again in the, in the humbling position my wife and I are to be able to see it every day, like it's kind of educating on that process too, that I think people will get extremely, you know, passionate. Yeah. You know, don't send flowers. Don't send candy. Let's roll up your sleeves and do something. Let's raise some money. Let's focus on where the need is the greatest. And the need, the, the greatest is to support research, basic laboratory research. Don't worry about clinical trials. Don't worry about all that stuff that's down the road. There are no clinical trials without the basic research to get you there. You know, you got, to start, you got to start at the very beginning. And, you know, our focus for 54 years was to start at the beginning. You know, it's not sexy. It's not exciting work. But you know what? When I started doing this in 1979, about 50% of children that were diagnosed with cancer were surviving. Today, like I said earlier, it's 85, 85. to 90% are surviving their cancer. So has basic laboratory research had an impact? Has an organization like Concern had an impact? Absolutely. 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 And I know today that somebody that I know and love, whether it's myself or a family member or a friend, if they get that diagnosis, diagnosis of cancer, it's not necessarily a fatal condition. There are treatment options. There are things that can be done that can save their life. Yes, and that's, 1, that makes me sleep well at night. I know that we're able to do that. And like you said, you know, being able to give 95 plus cents of every dollar to research by keeping our administrative overhead low, by asking for favors, by just telling people what we do and how we do it and why we do it. They get it because everyone, there's not one person I've ever spoken to that has not been touched by this disease. Not one. That's true. I mean, I can't, you know, get on. I was speaking at, at for some Duke uh, oncology uh, professionals last night, and there's not one airplane ride or anything where, you know, oh, cancer, and suddenly has a story. And yet, I think somehow it's like we know about it, we think about it, but we just leave it in the back and not, you know, not myself, obviously, you know, with it being my practice, but it's something that we just need to shed light on. Now, you mentioned something about 1979 and since you've been doing this. Let's talk for a second about what happened before 1979 and how it applies to the things after 1979. So you were in the music industry and this was the stuff I, I held my cards, to the, you know, before I shared with you. So I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions and you just say yes or no. Is music in some way, in the guidelines 
in the standard guidelines of cancer management and, uh, and cancer guidelines as well as Cancer Society recommendations? Is it part of the treatment plan or, or regimen when having a patient with cancer? Yes or no? What do you think? I probably would say no, and I would probably say that it should be the same way art therapy should be. Yes. And so interestingly, and I learned a lot just like, I was like, what, what else can we tie in the element of something that you're very humbly, you know, don't mention much on everything that I saw. Cancer therapy is actually part of the cancer guidelines to include in several different capacities. And nothing makes the guidelines without support and clinical trials, like without literature support and clinical trials. And there is a plethora, and you know that better than anybody, there's a plethora of information uh, or studies and, and meta-analyses and systematic review, reviews where, can, where music therapy actually helps several metrics when it comes to uh, a cancer patient, especially in a metastatic setting. But the, some of the most prominent ones are obviously like anxiety, but also actually the perception of pain. Um, fatigue is a little weaker, but there's several uh, studies that suggest that it's uh, positive in that as well. One thing that I didn't appreciate was the difference of music therapy versus introducing music. So mu having music is one thing to be able to, you know, for, for decreasing the perception of pain and things like that. But music therapy, actually, that's where the biggest, you know, difference is on, on experience, on pain, on several different metrics that I'm going to talk about in a second. But that's a more active process. That's where they actually, like, somebody implements, like, you know, vocals for music therapy or guitar string playing, it, the data is actually pretty overwhelming and therefore a standard recommendation. I didn't know that, but I agree right? that it should be there because I do think that in, in whatever you're doing during the day, if you go home and you turn on some music or you're, or you're driving in your car, especially in a city like Los Angeles and you're in bumper to bumper traffic and it takes you 45 minutes or an hour plus, you turn on music, it just soothes the rest of the day. It puts things in perspective. It, it takes you you're mentally into a whole different place by the time you get home. So yes, it absolutely it absolutely needs to be a part of it, and I'm glad that it is. You know, we're we're partners with an organization called the Beauty Bus Foundation. And Beauty Bus is about making the patient feel better about themselves. So when somebody's going Aww. chemotherapy. When they look in the mirror and they don't have hair or they're not wearing their makeup and they look ugly and they, they feel bad, their treatment may not be as successful as somebody that looks in the mirror after just getting, you know, their, a facial or wearing a wig or getting makeup. And they look in the mirror and say, you know what, I look pretty good, even though I'm going through a real tough time. So psychologically, it does make a difference. And like you'd said earlier, cancer is not just the patient. It's the family. It's mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles. But let's think about the siblings. Let's think about the brothers and sisters. When mom and dad are with, especially in pediatric cancer, when mom and dad are with the patient in the hospital, who's taking the brothers or sisters to ballet or to Little League or to soccer or helping them with their homework? Nobody. So those, those people are, those children are affected as much and they start rebelling because now the whole focus is on the patient but you know what you got to think about the whole family oh it's a we're, it's a family crisis it is it is 110 percent and that gosh that that's why you know i was on the wards like in my fellowship and we had like we happened to be next to the pediatric unit i remember seeing just one that was on the way to chemotherapy, holding is, you know, it, it's, it's very hard. It's very difficult for me. Um, 
but 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 that's amazing with the beauty bus and 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 also with the music part again i learned so much on just reading about this to find you know something that would be kind of more pertinent and it's not just in cancer but you mentioned the point about bumper to bumper traffic and stress and things like that i think it's very important to understand that the body has two constantly dynamically competing things it's called the sympathetic system and the parasympathetic system and they're always at odds with one another just like literally just one gets dialed up one goes down they're just always opposite and combating each other when you're in stressful situation the sympathetic system goes up when you're parasympathetic the stress you know sim the stress response goes down and so that's why like this whole thing well what you know do meditation like you know relax like do breathing exercises what is what what is the fundamental principle of all that parasympathetic booster because that causes the stress on your heart to go down that stuff you hear about the heart rate deeper breaths like lower blood pressure all that is parasympathetic which we know for a fact 110% is better than a hyperdrive you know sympathetic system where you get arrhythmias and high blood pressures and headaches and all of these things so much so that outside of cancer it even um, has been found to enhance pulmonary rehabilitation probably for that reason, because the parasympathetic is able to have, you know, more kind of coordinated uh, breaths. Mm -hmm. In hemodialysis patients, having self-selected music was statistically significant to even having fistula punctures where the pain was less, which I thought was really cool. That is cool. It helps in many different studies, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and it's actually, um, the data has suggested that it improves, and this is a strong metric to say, quality of life in terminal cancer patients. Uh, Cochrane actually had a big systematic review as well where they talked about this. So it's, it was just really neat. And, and, and to cancer specifically, an auto stem cell transplant. So that basically means you get an auto transplant when you take your own bone marrow cells and then you basically you know, give high, high enough dose chemo so that most of your aberrant or you know, messed up stem cells that went off a little awry they go away and you replace them back with the, you know, with the least differentiated, most, you know, highest of the level, you put them back into you. That's an autotransplant. Right. And with music, there was actually a reduced uh, narcotic medication use and pain perception in this population that had to go autotransplants. That's as opposed to allotransplants, where now you need a donor, you need somebody else's bone marrow cells, which is usually the case for acute myeloid leukemias or AMLs. Um, and I saw somewhere that you had twins and my wife is a twin. So I also wanted to share this other statistic with you and are they identical or fraternal? Fraternal. Okay. Fraternal. So it doesn't apply quite as much, but obviously it makes sense to think if you have a twin, right? So my wife has a twin. She's a, she's a doctor or twins, a lawyer. I remember when Catherine, the attorney was having a baby that had to have a replacement, uh, OBGYN that was on call. And he's making small talk. He goes, okay, so what do you do? She's like, I'm an attorney. And she's like, looked at my wife. What do you do? I'm a doctor. And he was like, yep, pretty much the worst situation you could ever have is an on-call uh, OBGYN. So I remember that very clearly. But um, but so with, with twins, identical twins, because they share the same genetics, like you can have an organ transplant, you know, obviously available to you, a perfect match. That's really ideal. The one place it doesn't apply, not kidneys, not everything else, is acute leukemia. And the reason for that is is when you have acute myeloid leukemia and need a transplant from a donor, part of that transplant isn't just to wipe out your bad leukemia cells and replace them with someone else's, but that someone else's uh, white blood cells and stem cells actually go attack any remaining leukemia. Right. But if you have an identical twin, 
then you don't get that tumor versus uh, uh, leukemia, tumor versus malignancy right. effect. So therefore, the effect or the benefit of the allo transplant is actually less with an identical twin, only in that organ compared to everything else. Right, but people don't think about it that way. They think, well, you just you should just transfer it over and they'll just clean everything right. up. But it, it doesn't work that way. I mean, we had funded, several years ago, we had funded a, a program of cleansing, taking the bone marrow out, cleansing it with these magnetic beads, and then putting it back into the body, getting rid of the cancer cells and putting it back into the body. Um, I think it was a study that was done at uh, USC, as a matter of fact. I think that, I don't remember the doctor, it could have been Malcolm Mitchell, I'm not really sure what his name was, but it was a, you know, it's a brilliant concept of, of being able to do that because, you know, to find a bone marrow match is really difficult and, you know, people didn't understand getting on the registry and, you know, being healthy enough to get on the registry, just get on there. But, you know, and then they start hearing these stories about people that were bone marrow donors and they hear about how painful it is and how the bone marrow has to be extracted from the pelvis and the recovery for the, for the donor. And I'm thinking, you know what, we all need to sacrifice a little bit to help our fellow man. You know, that's, yeah. if, that's the if that's, if that's the worst part, that's the least you can do. But you know, people don't I'm so do glad that. you said that. Right. It's like and, giving and blood. Let's, now, let's give blood. Let's do things to help somebody else. You know, and that's and and, and just to, to, to follow. I mean, that's how we run this organization. You know, it's a it's a volunteer driven organization. You don't have to write a big check in order to be involved with an organization with an organization of any kind. Roll up your sleeves. Donate your time. Volunteer your time. Help cut the administrative overhead by not having to hire volunteers to do some of the work that needs to be done volunteer give more money to that helps to give more money to whatever that cause is it's really a simple thing but everybody if everybody just did a little something and what i tell my children and now i tell my grandchildren is don't be a somebody don't be an everybody be a somebody do something oh, I like that don't just be like everybody. Be a somebody. Stand out in the crowd. And I don't care if you want to support and be a part of Concern Foundation and Cancer Research. Do you want to be a part of the environment? Do you want to help with, you know, kitten rescue? I really don't care. But just do something for somebody else. That's extraordinary. So, you know, I'm very proud of the listeners of this podcast. So I'm going to ask you, and I've never asked this before, but as somebody that's obviously very seasoned and dedicated their career, their life to really like helping very selflessly because it doesn't really come back to you or to any of us or people that are donating, right? It's just investing in humankind and the future in general. But if somebody listening to this says, you know, and they are, they're all interested in cancer and they said, okay, yeah, I, I need to do something. I want to do something. It's time. They might be 17 years old. They may be in a position that they can at 35, whatever. What are the, what are the three things, just three rattle off that, that said, if you, you know, make a plan of action to do it this weekend or next week, then you're started on your way. What are those three, three things? Find something that you're passionate about, roll up your sleeves. That would be number one. Number two is find something that's bigger than you and do something. I mean, it's really, it, it's really, it's all, inter, it's all really connected. You know, it's just being a somebody. It really goes back to that philosophy of being a somebody. Do something for somebody other than yourself. Because like in cancer, when I got involved, you know, almost 40 years ago, over 40 years ago, to me, I look at it as an insurance policy. Like I said earlier, now I know that if somebody I know and love gets this diagnosis of cancer, I've made an investment of my time and energy 
so that it's not a fatal condition. They have a chance of surviving. And as I was getting older, growing up, and I had met a, a, a friend that was di what, 29 years old. She found a lump in her breast. She went from doctor to doctor, oncologist to oncologist, said, I have this lump. I think I have breast cancer. Doctor, they each one kept throwing her out of the office. Said, no, you're 29 years old. 29-year-olds don't get breast cancer, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is, you know, this is back in the early 80s. She did have a breast. She did have a lump in her breast. It turns out that she was BRCA positive. Her mother was BRCA positive and had just died of ovarian cancer. And the doctors didn't realize the correlation between breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Her sister is BRCA positive. Her nieces are all BRCA positive. So look at where we've come today. You know, if this were at her at the time when she was diagnosed, if we knew what we know knew then what we know today she would still be here today. And unfortunately, she passed away because they didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the understanding. And they just discounted it. And, you know, she wasn't a strong enough advocate for herself to be able to save her life. It's really, it's really disheartening to me. And I don't think we're at that place anymore today. I think that doctors understand more. Patients understand more. I think people are taking more responsibility for their own health. And that's what you have to be. You got to you know, what's the old adage? The squeaky wheel. Her story changed my life. It really did. Well, you know, that's one of the hardest things as an oncologist is it's challenging enough to, you know, introduce a diagnosis, stage four or not, but especially of stage four to a patient. But when I have that, you know, 20s or 30s patient, it's regularly, and they say, when I went into the, you know, to my primary or ER with abdominal pain, and they said it was gas, is it possible it would have been curable then? Like, that's that very much still happens, right? But that's because statistically, it's unlikely. But of course, there's always an unlikely. I was having that conversation with my best friend who unfortunately just got diagnosed with something very, you know, serious. And, and I was saying, well, it's unlikely you have this mutation. What if he's like, you know, respectfully, it's like everything about this whole course is unlikely. And yet it's, you know, and I, it was very disillusioning, even though, you know, I have to have those difficult conversations I just shared with you. But so we have a long way, but it's with funding and research that we were able to also get, you know, these tests now where it can be relatively affordable and actually legitimately now cheaper than getting that CT scan of the abdomen, seeing an early ovarian cancer in a 30 year old. It's cheaper to pretend to get a blood test that could tell you that you have the cancer. So now, you know, if the excuse was economic and, and cost and healthcare costs, we're even with research, we're finding ways to detect cancer at a lower cost and with a higher sensitivity that can hopefully have less of those conversations when you're telling the patient or their family member. So that it, it, it's not just the actual cure part. It's, it's, it's the whole collection of, of all exactly. of those things. It, it is, the, it complete, is the, whole, it's the whole, it's the whole thing. And young adults, young men with testicular cancer, no one ever educated them about, you know, sperm banks, bank your sperm. What happens, you know? What happens? We need to we need to do that. You need to give them that story that that's what they should be doing. And young women with ovarian cancer, you know, they you know, harvest their eggs and doing things that they can still once they survive their cancer, they can live a normal, healthy, productive life. But they didn't know how to tell people how to do that. There was not enough education. I think we've come so far, Sanjay, and you know it firsthand, and your wife knows it firsthand. But yeah, there are people that are diagnosed with stage four cancers. And I've seen a lot of people with stage four cancers survive. I've seen a lot of people with stage four cancers yeah. prolong their life and live a healthy, 
life maybe five or six extra years when 20 years ago, if they would have gotten that diagnosis, the doctors would basically tell him, go home, say, say goodbye to your friends, you know, get your affairs in order because you're not going to be here. That doesn't happen today. Well, well, it, it shouldn't happen today, but I will tell you, at least being from Louisiana, a lot of, I think, you know, and they're busy. It's not that they're not putting the time to learn, but, but a lot of ERs and hospitals will tell a patient that, you know, if they see widespread disease and they're over 80, like, hey, you know, you have something really bad, you need to consider hospice without even knowing those mutations or that, you know, and so that there is a lot still to be delivered, even in the United States, even in the healthcare system about education and saying, hey, we respect like very much that you had those hard conversations 10, 15 years ago. But now the only appropriate thing to say is it looks like it's, you know, stage four cancer, but really it's appropriate to see an oncologist because exactly what you said, melanoma 20 years ago was awful stage four. I mean, good luck. Now, 50, almost 50%, 40% chance of non-chemo, of immune therapy to like have a response. And if you do, it's like an 80% chance of having complete remission. So much so that people have to decide, do we stop the immune therapy? It's been four or five years. Widespread stage four melanoma. I mean, right. it's, it's, we've come a huge way. A lot. And the second point, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. You're, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I had that whole, this sort of conversation with my father. My father was diagnosed with prostate cancer in his mid-80s. And he says, I got to get this cancer out of my body. And I said, well, you know, at mid it's a slow-growing cancer. You know, you'll probably outlive the cancer, blah, blah, blah. Cancer is probably not going to kill you. But I said, you know what? Because of the advancements in research with robotic surgery today, they can go in robotically. It's not major surgery. You can go in robotically. They, you know, drill the six, seven, nine holes, whatever. Remove it. Get the cancer out of your body. Mentally, he felt better. I said, because of robotics, because of research, I recommend that you do that. He did it. His whole body changed. His whole mental outlook changed because he was able to get that cancer out of his body. And that all comes from research that we're, today we're able to have robotic surgeries for these patients. It's, it's, it's a game changer. And detecting things earlier. So it's like, you know, like we like this big thing, PSMA scan. Like that was, that's been so huge now because instead of just getting a generalized image where it takes 600,000 cells to see it on a modern CT. So if you have 200,000, good luck. You're told that the scans are totally negative. Now, at least in prostate cancer, we can put in something that's not a generalized contrast or generalized solution. And it actually goes to see where prostate stuff is made, PSA. And if it does, it lights up. I mean, that's so mind-blowingly novel and imagine you could do that for pancreatic or lung or anything where you had something an isotope or some kind of marker that said hey this is a feature of like cancer and i'm just going to go to it and show you because any cancer other than maybe anaplastic thyroid and, and glioblastoma for now any cancer if it's caught early enough like super early like just a couple of cells before it shows an imaging if you take that out and then the margins around it it's curable right most cancer are curable if you were to have caught it early enough the trouble is, how do you catch it early enough? Right. And then that's also a big part of research. Is like, is is what? Are, how can we be more sensitive and catch it earlier and at a lower cost? And to do that, you have to have better equipment and better, you know, like uh, studies to find out how yeah. you can do it on that and, nano level. And the patient needs to take their own take responsibility for their own well being. If there's something, mm-hmm. na- if there's something about a change in your body, don't be afraid to go to the doctor. Don't say, oh, don't worry, that nagging cough is going to go away. Well, wait a minute, you smoking for the last 40 years, gee, maybe there's something here. Or, you know, take some responsibility. And doctors today don't throw you out of the office like they used to. Say, oh, don't worry about it. It's nothing. Go home. 
take responsibility, you know, but that, you know, that, that's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation about the healthcare system in this country and, and all that. But again, I, 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 I it's true. I can't, I mean, the healthcare system I, is far from optimal. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, where, What's that? I can't stress enough that everybody needs to take responsibility for their own bodies. You have to know what's going on and you have to do something about it. It's not going to disappear. It's not going to go away. And as you said, if it's caught early, if it's treated aggressively, your chances of survival are off the charts. Far better, exactly. And and in the term is a similar message, but the term I like to use is patients unfortunately have to be their own biggest advocate today. But until the healthcare system is optimized and there's more doctors somehow, I don't know how this is gonna happen with as long as it takes. But but it's required, unfortunately. And that's why, you know, social media, what I do is I, I'm giving you everything I can give you to then empower you to be able to, with confidence if you need it, to say, hey, this is something concerning. And to your point about 40 years smoking, if I told you that mammograms and colonoscopies were only done 5% of the time in patients that was appropriate for, that would be crazy, right? Well, low-dose CT scans, which have been around data-proven, 20% improvement in survival. 20%, one in five people will stay alive because of this screening, which is why it's approved for now over 10 years, I believe, almost yeah. 10 years. I think it's 10 only years, like yeah. Only like 5 to 7% are actually ordered. If you smoke over 25 years or, or 25 pack years and you're over, you know, 50, like you should be getting an annual low-dose CT. And every time I see a stage four, you know, from outside, outside community and they haven't gotten one, I'm like, you, your insurance would have paid for it. I would never say that, but there's just so much. We can tackle it all. But I will, I want to answer your third, I want to answer your third question for you on what people can do. And I'm answering it in the way that you were kind of saying, which was, if nothing else, if you want to contribute to cancer and helping people, please like register for the bone marrow registry. All you have to do is just Google bone marrow registry. It's a free kit that comes to your house. Caucasians have about an 80, 85% chance of locking in their remission and living for the rest of their life, at least have a match to do it. Whereas minorities, African-Americans and even Indians and stuff are like literally 30 to 40%. The hardest thing for me is when I have a patient that's in remission, temporary, it's a Band-Aid, they're in remission, that's the best time to transplant, and we keep looking, especially my African-American population, we're just praying. All of us, we're doing these centers, we're doing these walks to have people register on campus because maybe genetically there's a chance they're related. And then, then they're you know, going a little past how long we know that bridging therapy works and then we're past it. And it's so sad. Like that is, I can't imagine the way to have to live that way to say like, I just need someone to take the time to put whatever and register and it could be my match and life savior. And they pass. There are people passing every day waiting on a match in a remission. And a lot of them, you know, are, are people's kids and, 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 and husband and wife. So I think that would be mine for today is please, if you're listening to this, Google it, register. It can literally save somebody's life. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, again, I think it really goes, and I think you're right. I think I was trying to say, say it, and maybe mm -hmm. you said it a lot more eloquently than I did. Do something. Yeah. Do something, yeah. whatever. There's a lot of things out there that you can do that don't cost a lot of money, don't take a lot of time, don't really change your life until you're needed, but do something, you know? Yeah. Give a dollar, you know, support somebody. Bone marrow registry, you know, donate blood. There's such a huge blood shortage in this country right now. Donate blood, donate platelets. I mean, there's just so much, just do something. Don't just yeah. drive by and say, it's not my problem. It is your problem. It's all of our problems. And if we're only going to solve all the problems that are happening around us when we all work together to get to that point.
It's not going to take one or two people. It's going to take not. everybody. And that's one thousand percent. And you're 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 a hundred percent correct. And that's why you know with our organization, I love the fact that we do our annual events. You know, it's coming up in in the next couple of weeks. I mean, we're going to have three to four thousand people joining together to raise money to support cancer research. I mean, as of today, we're about four weeks out. We're over $1.5 million raised, of which 95 cents of that money is going to go support cancer research. And the simple formula to our organization is every time we raise $60,000, it's one more young cancer researcher that is getting funded by our organization. That's how simple it is. That's incredible. And you said how much this year? 4.5? We're at $1.5 million with a month left to go in our fundraising. We should, That's at this rate, we should raise about $2 million. And, and anyone's listening, I'll be there. I'm very humbled like to be able to go out there and meet you know a lot of the people on the West Coast. Again, I'm from Louisiana. Um, so I'm, I'm super ecstatic. And I, I fully plan on this breaking the seal for my first time. For, for my forever time to be over there and support something that obviously that 95% really hit me uh, is just so, you know, optimized, efficient, and charitable. Well, and, and the beauty part of what you'll see is, I mean, we're, you're going to see 50-plus restaurants and caterers all donating. You're going to see all these people joining together. I mean, it, it, the, the donations, the support that we're getting from the community is unbelievable. You know, I thought, you know, after... After COVID and, you know, people are trying to get back to normal, I said, it didn't happen. I mean, people are giving more money. They're giving more time. They're giving more support because they, they're realizing the fragility of life. You know, let's do something mm -hmm. for somebody else because one of these days it's going to come back to help us. Yeah. And, and, and it feels good. Like, and, and love like literally begets love. Like it's infectious. Like if everyone's just like, or, you know, if you don't want to use the word love, whatever it is. Doing good begets doing good. It's like it's actually a slippery slope. Like giving blood, for example, the the people, you know, I would say a handful, it's more than that now, that I've convinced to just please try it once, give blood. That level of discomfort, the thought going into it, and then the actual, you know, physical, everyone knows not that bad, but even the thought of having it get poked and stuff, they literally 100% of the time tell me it felt so good to have done it after the fact. So there sometimes is a little inconvenience or discomfort into doing, you know, something. But if the reward on the other end is in a bigger picture doing something good, like you should be assured, I hope, and if I'm wrong, text me, tell me, like email me. But I, I believe that that doing good way overcomes, you know, logarithmically that initial level of inconvenience and there's, discomfort. There's no question. Look, you think about if, if, if for you to give blood and it's going to take an hour out of your day to be able to do that, think about the patient that is receiving your blood that's going through chemotherapy or radiation. They can't get out of bed. They can't lift their head off their pillow. That are fighting for their life. You gave blood because you can. They're fighting for their life. Let's put yourself in their position. And then you kind of say, okay, I get it. You know, you put it in perspective. You know, one thing that I do, I don't talk about it a lot, but I, I can tell you is, you know, for the last 30 plus years since going to Children's Hospital, I've become the Santa Claus at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. So I go every Christmas Eve and now we do a Christmas in July. So twice a year I go and walk through the halls and see the children. We deliver gifts because I do that because it re-energizes and reminds me of why I come in here every day, why I work so hard to raise money, why research is so important. 
I just, because I can give back, I can do that. And I don't do it as, as part of Concern Foundation. I do that just as an individual, just to be able to go and give right. back. But it really, it keeps everything in perspective because we go, we walk around this world. So many of us walk around this world with blinders on. But when you see mm-hmm. it firsthand, when you touch it, when you feel it, when you look into a child's eye or you look at a parent, a mother that, you know, that's tears in her eyes. It's, it's you know, Sanjay, I was there. Uh, in December, and a young lady walks up to me. She's 20, 22 or 23 years old. She says, I got to show you a picture. She says, when I was 12 years old, she said, I was a patient at Children's Hospital. You walked into my room the day before or two days before my bone marrow transplants. And she had a picture of me and her mother. She tells, and she says, I've never seen you in person. She says, I looked at your eyes. And I knew it was you. And she You're giving me chills. And she showed me the picture of me twelve years ago, twelve or thirteen years ago, in her room. And she said it changed my outcome. It changed my life. And she's now a volunteer at Children's Hospital. Oh my gosh! I just have chills literally from head to toe. That's that is such an oh my gosh! That's incredible. And but and and what she experienced was what you did not for that reward, not because you knew that she would come back in 10 years, but just because you had this calling or feeling or initiative to do so. And it literally rippled to her doing this for many hers, you know, like, like girls and boys, like all over that are in her situation. And that, that is the example of, I think what we've really talked about this whole episode is like, it's that ripple effect, but without any expectation necessarily of receiving anything from that ripple that goes downstream. But but she knows how it felt for you to do what you did. And she wants to give that to others. And that's an important concept, I think, now more than ever. It takes a conscientious, proactive initiative to make yourself more sensitized. Like, don't you, you're desensitized in your home to almost everything. It takes that level of, let me take away, let me strip away that kind of like barrier and get raw and get real. But like the discomfort of giving blood, that same discomfort a little bit, like, it's going to be there, but it, the return is meaningfulness and initiative and, and, and drive and, and really just the sense of like wanting to give, but it does take an active part. So if you're listening to this and saying, I don't, I don't feel that, like you can challenge it yourself at the very least to go experience it. And I, I do believe in intrinsic good. And my wife does too, as she said all the time that we are all inherently good people, but it's very easy for it to get masked. You just got to, like anything else, take care of it. You got to shine it. You got to dust it. You got to like let it show and it, and it can be very vibrant. But we all get caught up in our own stuff, you mm-hmm. know, but just, you know, get rid, let all of that go. Yeah. Just think about how important, you know, it's a It does, as the saying goes, it takes a village. You know, we're all villagers. We're all part of this village. And until we all do that. It's not, it's not going to keep getting better. You know, we need, you know, we need 10,000 more organizations like Concern Foundation. We need so many more people doing what we're doing. You know, we're, we're a local Los Angeles-based organization, but we have an international impact. In 54 years, we've raised over $70 million for research. And we're giving money all over the world, aside from just in our local community. And I know that we've touched millions of lives, and there's millions of people today that have survived their cancer just because of that little tiny step that we took in helping them get to that point. It just feels good. You know, giving back feels good. It has to. 
Well, I'm going to leave. I've never had an episode, closed an episode, or even during, talked about like referencing to another video specifically. But I'm going to leave with three thoughts because I think you've touched on all of them. Number one, Carl Sagan, Pale Blue Dot. Anytime I was like really stressed in college and in med school and I got just overwhelmed, like listening to, you know, YouTube has many different renditions, but he talks about just the kind of like finiteness of us, but also the importance of just being kinder to one another and how, you know, just marginally different we are from one pixel to another. It's amazing. Number two, there's this uh, YouTube video called Holly's Story. And that's what in med school I was saying, like, is this for me? It's so much work. I'm missing my friends and family's birthdays. And I watched Holly's Story. And she's a patient that wrote a long letter uh, the day before she passed. And it was very moving. It was very grounding. She touched on all the things you spoke on. Just be kinder. It doesn't hurt. It makes you feel good. Everything that we've said in this episode. But at the end, and I, was, I remember I was on the edge of my seat. She said, if I ask one thing of you, if this message meant something to you, she said, and it makes me teary, she's like, please go give blood. She's like, I would have died a long time ago if it wasn't, like, she had something like 35, 7 units. She's like, those was 37 people that kept me alive. And she's like, it's just, to be on the receiving end, you have no idea how it feels. It's extraordinary. And the third thing is check out the Concern Foundation. I've learned a lot from it. You know, there's there's so many foundations, which is amazing, that's out there, but I will say, and this is nothing we talked about, but I think the most notable, obviously, because I get asked a lot on all my social media, and the way I gauge it is, are they, do you know where the money's going and things like that? And when I saw just very, you know, out there, like transparent, 95 cents, like that's, that, that's just, that really says something. And I can just say that completely unbiased because uh, it's always been a metric of mine. So I appreciate, and we all appreciate you so much. Uh, Mr. Derek Alper, I can't wait to meet you um, in, a, in four weeks. I hope anyone listening to this comes out. we got a lot of healthcare-related social media people out there, and um, I really hope that they come out. And Can you tell us where it is and what dates exactly? It's, it's Saturday, July 9th. It's going to be on the back lot of Paramount mm-hmm. Studios. Um, like I said, we're going to have between three and 4,000 people, lots of food, lots of entertainment, and it's just a great coming together of people wanting to help people that most of which they don't even know and yeah. the beauty part about this and, and I'm, i look forward to having you out there sanjay and some of our researchers will be there so you'll get an opportunity to meet them and you'll just be able to celebrate life with us because that's you know this is our 47th block party and every year we get together and we celebrate the fact that we're doing some great stuff in the community and people are surviving their cancer and that's really what it's all about yeah. If you have no tie to cancer at all, I bet I would just ask if you go over there, you will feel that like exactly what you did in a children's hospital as, you know, this big executive position of this music company you were with. And I'm, it's done very well. Um, you just go just go just to challenge yourself, just to like give it a litmus test. And I, and I have to believe that kind of energy, especially something so philanthropic and selfless, it's got to get into your skin. And who knows, make a career like Mr. Alpert of an entirely different focus because he went into the environment that like it went into his skin. And so if you're listening to this, that could be very well be you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. You know, look, I, I thought when I was in the music business, I thought I had the greatest job in the world. And at the time I did, but when I started getting full-time involved with concern, volunteering, but then full-time, it really put everything in perspective because yeah, we're, you know, creating music and I was putting music in motion pictures and it was a wonderful time. It was a wonderful experience. Was I changing anybody's life? Was I saving people's lives? No. But in the 40 plus years of being here, when I see patients coming back 
survived, who have survived their cancer are now coming back as volunteers. And I hear the stories and I see the parents and I mean, just puts it all in perspective. Life is, you know, happens like that. So while we're here, let's do something. I love that. That's we all need shirts. We need merch. You know, and, 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 yeah, just do something. You know, be a somebody. That's all. That's really that to me. That's my mantra. Be a somebody. And and you don't have to do a lot of fanfare. I don't tell people what I do. I don't. Nobody knows when I go to children's hospital who I am, and I don't tell them. And you know, I don't. I don't want the accolades. I don't want to be, you know, celebrated. I do it because it's in my heart. It's in my soul. And to me, it's the right thing to do. And when I hear stories. Like from this young lady, I know I did the right thing, and I, yeah. I love my life, and I love, and you know, the only people that really know what I do are my children and my grandchildren, because I want them to understand and carry that legacy forward. You know, my That's my beautiful. parents were very charitable. My father was very charitable. My whole family is. Uh, my uncle is extremely charitable, and you know, it rubbed off. And I'm, 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 so honored, I'm so honored and I'm actually blessed to be able to do what I do. I wake up every day excited to come in here and figure out how can I raise a dollar more today than we did yesterday because I know it's going to go and help somebody, somebody's life. That's the key, right? It's really simple. Yeah. What do you, what do you, the energy and time you put into your workplace or your work or what you're doing with your life, what is the, what is the outcome? What is that growing, that energy? And I think that's that's a reason for a lot of unhappiness or versus fulfillment and happiness. You know, if somebody's listening to this and hates, the, you know, or dislikes our job and whatever, just ask yourself, what is the end, you know, thing? And is it something that fulfills me? And and maybe if it's not, then you can find, you know, work even a little harder, which you would think, no, I can't work any harder. But then if it fulfills you, it could actually be 10 times more enjoyable. And I think that's an important message as well. Yeah. Well, you know, I there was a, a poem that I remember just... The, one part of a poem that stuck with me for my whole life, and I think I think it was William Allen White that wrote it. It was, "I'm not afraid of tomorrow. I've seen yesterday, and I love today." I love that. It's pretty simple. Yeah, it's very simple, but it says it all. A few short lines really says it all. I'm not afraid of tomorrow. I saw yesterday. I love today. And I love today. Right. Gosh. All right, going to the tattoo artist. Today, get my first tattoo, second tattoo. That's the phrase right here. There you go. I love it. Well, thank you so much. And um, and we thank like, you. I mean, I, I I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you know your podcast and getting the word out and and just helping to educate and motivate and and stimulate people to go out and do something special because we're gonna we're gonna conquer this thing. I yeah. guarantee we're going to conquer this thing. And, and you know, that's it what it's all village. about. And it takes a village. And it does, take, it does take the village. So many great phrases. Thank you so much, Mr. Derek Alfred. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you at the block party on July 9th.